for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight marks two years since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We were on the air as it began. A war that was meant to last just a few days has now gone on for 24 months. We get the view from Kiev on what that time has been like, what the hopes are for the future and the fears. We find out if Canada is matching its words of support for Ukraine with action. We learn how some of the more than 200,000 Ukrainians who've come to this country to flee the conflict over the past two years are making out. We look into what's happening on the battlefield and if or how a military stalemate will change. And Canada's UN Ambassador Bob Ray is with me to talk about why any attempted peace with Vladimir Putin is a price he thinks is not worth paying. It was two years ago at this very instant, just as, the, just as this show went to air, in the early days of a little more conversation, by the way, that Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The Russian President Vladimir Putin had gone to the airwaves and called it a special military operation. Now, I'd spent quite a bit of time in Ukraine as a foreign correspondent. I'd been to places like Kiev and Mariupol and Donetsk, places that maybe just places in war now, but places that I knew intimately, knew familiarly, knew people there. So I've been following the developments pretty closely. But nothing quite prepares you for the moment that it actually happens, when a full-scale invasion actually happens. Here's what I sounded like on the air two years ago to the minute. Since we've come to air, there's been developments in Ukraine. There are reports tonight of explosions in uh, several Ukrainian cities. We're still getting confirmation of that. Um, we've also heard earlier from uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, who announced that he was beginning a military operation in eastern Ukraine, did not define exactly what he meant by eastern Ukraine. So as you can tell, at that point, we didn't know just how widespread this invasion was was at that very instant. Uh, and as the world would soon see and hear, people across Ukraine, including in the capital, Kyiv, woke up to the most ominous sounds before sunrise that day. They were the sounds of war. Yeah, Russia had launched a simultaneous ground and air campaign, starting with an air and missile strikes across Ukraine, with some rockets reaching as far west as Lviv. What's described as the biggest attack on a European country since the Second World War had begun. And it was soon clear that despite the conflict having continued in eastern Ukraine since 2014, this would put an entire country in the line of fire. Just imagine waking up to that. Just imagine for a second, as you said, people, as people sit in Canada and weigh in on social media and talk about what they know and what they think about politics in other parts of the world, just imagine for a second waking up to that. Waking up to that. Russia, it seemed, was under the impression that this would be a quick and painless operation. Some analysts predicted it would take as few as three days for Russian forces to capture the capital, Kyiv. That did not happen. Instead, Ukraine put up fierce resistance, especially in pushing back efforts to capture the capital. The story goes that the U.S. had contacted Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and offered to help him flee the country and avoid being captured or killed by the Russians. Legend has it that Zelensky responded, the fight is here. I need ammunition, not a ride. 
That was 24 months ago. Much has happened since. The war, in many ways, has become a stalemate. Russia still occupies a good chunk of southern and eastern Ukraine and, and, and still Crimea. Uh, but Ukraine, in some ways, has managed to continue to defend itself. One person who remembers those early hours of the war all too well is Ukrainian MP Kira Rudek, who, like so many, woke before dawn to the sounds of an invasion and two years later is still in Kyiv still an MP, and still, despite a Russian missile attack that nearly destroyed her apartment in early January, still confident Ukraine can win this war. Kira Rudik uh, joins me now from Kiev. Thank you so much. Welcome back. Hello, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, I, I, I obviously often think of the people I've spoken to in Kiev as the months go on. Take me back to that night two years ago. I mean, everyone must remember what they were doing and where they were when this all began. Uh, I remember that I was at home. It was 5 a.m. when the bombarding of Kiev started. And we know that it's very clear in the Ukrainian constitution what the parliament should do at the times like this. We should gather inside the chambers and vote for the martial law to begin. And I remember how we did not know if people are around and Kiev was in distress and uh, people were trying to evacuate their families and bombarding was constant. And um, we gathered however we could. And when there was a security clearance, we gathered in the chambers. And when we looked around, we have seen that of 420 members of parliament, almost 300 came. And for the 10 minutes that we were there, desperately clicking our buttons, calling for the whole world to stand with us, showing to Ukrainian people that we are not running and the country operates and we will be defending ourselves against the aggressor. And we uh, are just very hoping that we are not going to be doing that alone. We were clicking our buttons and holding hands and singing national anthem. And on behalf of Ukrainian people right now, two years after, whoever is hearing right now, we are so grateful that you answered that call. Yeah, I remember seeing the images of that, of that, of those moments when you were when you were holding hands and singing, singing and 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 voting. And I think a lot of people didn't know, and I'm sure you were in the same position. People didn't know if there were going to be 300 MPs there, if if the president was going to be there. People didn't know that for sure, but it seemed like the beginning of something, something we're still that's still unfolding 24 months later. But it seemed like the beginning of Ukraine's resistance to what had just happened to it, that it didn't collapse immediately, that it was stood that it stood up. You know, at the times like this, at the crises, you define yourself. You define your country and your community. And I think it was very important for those first days when the whole world did not believe in us, when all the good and the best minds were saying that we have probably two or three days, maybe a week. Against all odds, we were able to survive, fight back, regroup, organize and say, no, you are not getting us. We are stronger than everybody expecting us, and we will be fighting. It must have been difficult then over the ensuing months and even today to see so many people have to leave, so many families torn apart uh, by this conflict. Um, you too, I mean, you've been you've been right there in Kiev the whole time. We've spoken several times. Uh, your apartment was shelled recently. How difficult has it been just to keep up this pace for 24 months as an MP, as as a as a someone from Kiev, as a citizen, as a Ukrainian, you know, um, my grandmother she has gone through the Second World War, and she always always used to say that nobody returns from the war, 
because even like no matter how much you're involved and how much you have seen, it still affects everyone. So I can tell you it's very hard. It's not something that you ever get ready to. You are not trained to be a mother in the times of the war, a teacher, a doctor, member of parliament, you name it. And so you just have to do the best that you can. But most important to have people around you, to help them with all your capacity. Because what we learned, the best way is that it's unity that is keeping us together and makes us stronger. And it's not only unity inside the country. It's also unity of many, many good people who who were standing with us, who were helping us and who said, we believe in you. We believe that you are fighting for the right thing. And I think it's with, with all the struggles and broken dreams and upsetting things, you still feel this support and this love. And this is what is getting getting us going. All of that and the hope that one day we will win the war and we will be able to live in peace. I was noticing even on my way here, here I am on the other side of Canada and BC and on my way to work today, I saw Ukrainian flags. I still see Ukrainian flags here and it's been, it's been two years. People have not forgotten. Y- your apartment was shelled. I mean, not, I don't want to talk too, too much. I don't want you to have to talk about yourself too, too much, but it was a reminder of how everyone in Kyiv faces that uncertainty every single day that suddenly their entire lives can be shattered in, in, an, in an instant. I, I can tell you, Ben, it was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. Because I witnessed it, I was at home and I have seen those windows being pulled out of the frames. I have seen this like nearly Armageddon situation and um, it's not something that you can forget or get over uh, quickly. And again, I was really, really lucky because I was not not injured much and many of my uh, neighbors they uh, they were injured much worse and and it was just terrifying and the terrifying fact is that you cannot be prepared to that you just go to bed and you have no guarantee that you will wake up in the morning and it happens every single day in different places both at the front but also at the peaceful cities uh, and we are begging the world for more air defense systems for those fighter jets it is not because we really want them or we need them, it's just a matter of life and death for us. If we did not get uh, those edifice systems that are right now in place, there would have been more victims, but we still do not have enough of those systems because uh, many of the Russian attacks are successful. Same way as it was on January 2nd when, um, when the missile hit near where I live. Kira Rudek is a Ukrainian MP and head of the Golosh Party. She's speaking to us tonight from Kyiv on the second anniversary of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Kira, when you look back at the last two years, tell me about some of the triumphs, because I think you've already talked about them a bit. From afar, you see the triumph of the Ukrainian people to stand up and defend themselves. You see the world coming together, I thought, to, to, to back Kyiv in many ways. I know that may not always feel that way in where you are, but certainly on this side, we've seen sort of a, a unified effort and support for Ukraine's fight against Russia. Uh, how has it been from where you sit? Well, if we are talking about triumphs, just imagine this, Ben. We are the only country in the whole world that does not have a fleet, but was able to destroy 25% of Russia's fleet. Yeah, but it's Navy, right? Yeah. Yes. yes, we were we were smarter, we were more creative, we were we, we used advanced technologies uh, that were just developed here in Ukraine, 
And we were able to show the result to the whole world that is saying, wow, we're able to unblock our ports and continue exporting the grain. And I think this is something to be very much proud of. Uh, if we are talking about triumphs, we were able to take back 50% of what Russia initially has gained. And of course, we want to take back all of our territories and liberate all of our people. Uh, but it is indeed an, an extensively hard task. And especially it is hard to do without enough weapons and supplies and ammunition. When we, I mean, we've talked about this again over the past while, the frustrations with how this plays out politically and just what that means uh, on the front lines, how difficult it is uh, to be in Ukraine and to watch this whole issue become politicized. In other words, it's not the Ukrainians who have war. The idea that anyone would have war fatigue in North America or in Europe is, is a pretty interesting concept if you're Ukrainian, I'm sure. It is indeed, because... From our perspective, we know that Putin would not stop unless he stopped. And I think recently the whole world has seen a confirmation of that. And we feel and we know that we are protecting the rest of the free world from the horde that is coming to get all of you, all of us. And then we see the delay or war fatigue or something. And we ask, like, don't you understand if there is one person in the whole world who is happy because of because U.S. Congress cannot vote for the support for Ukraine, it is Vladimir Putin. And you know, Ben, it's extremely painful because in the meantime, Russia's allies, Iran and North Korea, they are supplying them with uh, with weapons. Recently, we have a confirmed case where North Korean weapon, uh, missile hit near Kiev. After all the sanctions, after all the limitations that are being set, all those countries and Iran and North Korea were not sanctions two years ago. They were sanctioned a while before, right? So they're still able to produce weapons, then deliver them to Russia and then use them. So it it, it should be a wake-up call for so many democratic leaders saying, well, we probably are not doing everything we can, not only in the matter of uh, uh, delivering weapons to Ukraine, but also stopping the authoritarian regimes from producing weapons themselves. Yeah, I mean that's the, the the fact that the sanctions haven't had the bite that that the West thought they would have, because they that felt like the real tool, that felt like the weapon, right? Uh, and it hasn't worked necessarily. I mean, I think Russia has suffered, but it certainly hasn't stopped it. It hasn't thwarted it, and that that uh, that's disappointing. Obviously, from here, here we are, two years later. From here, what does Ukraine, I mean, we, I've asked you this question every six months now for two years. What does Ukraine need then in the short term? Uh, clearly, one of the the frozen assets issue is a big one. The frozen Russian assets should be going to help support Ukraine um, and weapons, right? I mean, this is the same conversation we've had often, Kira. First of all, we need weapons to defend ourselves. There is no kind of weapons that you would send our way and we will deny so for the countries that are not at war right now, whatever you deliver to Ukraine is an investment into the fact that the war would never knock on your door. The second point is, of course, frozen Russian assets. We know that people do not have too much money to give around. And it is okay. We are grateful for what we have received. But right now, it's the best and the most fair solution to use Russian money that are being frozen in the democratic countries to help Ukraine continue fighting and to help us restore uh, the um, country uh, right now and after the war. But right now is critically important for us. And third thing is 
look critically at the sanctions and make sure that they do not have loopholes and that they actually work. If those three things will be done properly, uh, we will be in absolutely different situation. Sure. I mean, I've been to Kyiv, I guess, 10 years ago now, maybe nine years ago was the last time I was there. And you must hold out hope that there'll be a, there'll come a day when you can go back to walking those streets the way you did two years and a month ago. Oh, man, my, uh, <laughs> my dreams are much simpler. I dream one day when I will wake up and it will, it will be not an air raid siren sound, that I will be sitting at home and wouldn't be afraid that I will get a call from school that they had to go and study uh, at the basement, that I will never get a message from a person that I personally know that he or she is wounded and that I will never get a message that somebody died at war and was killed and and will never call back again. And that the Ukrainian flag, flag will be rolled on his or her coffin. And of course, I dream of a day when there would be a tribunal in Hague and Putin will be on the bench. And for all the war crimes that, that Russia have committed, there would be people held responsible to make sure that the terror will never be repeated again. This is something that we owe to people and, and, and to generations that are coming after us. Because I think the fact that the world did not learn the lessons from the previous war led to this war, when Russia was able to exist as an empire and act as an empire, and right now start the act of aggression on Ukraine. Well, Kira, as always, thank you. Thank you. And glory to Ukraine. So again, it was exactly two years ago that millions of Ukrainians were waking up to the sound of a full-scale Russian invasion. Uh, to mark the anniversary today, and in response to the death last week of Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny, Ukraine, Canada, Britain, and the U.S. are imposing new sanctions on Russia. It comes as concerns grow over a U.S. aid bill for Ukraine that was passed by the Senate but is stalled in the House as Ukrainian forces are running dangerously low on ammunition and weaponry. Ukraine has been able to keep fighting in large part due to the nearly $350 billion in aid that's been committed by mostly Western nations since January of 2022. The Prime Minister said yesterday that Canada has committed more than $9 billion to Ukraine and more than $2.4 billion in military assistance. The Canadians I speak to from coast to coast to coast are still unequivocal that we need to be there for Ukraine. So uh, we are working with partners around the world uh, to make sure we're f sending more uh, military equipment, uh, whatever we can, and uh, continue to purchase more on the world markets to send to Ukraine. Yeah, there is an issue here, though, is that Canada's in the amount that we have to give is limited. Uh, this week, the Liberal government announced it will send more than 800 drones to Ukraine starting as early as this spring. The defense minister says the drones are important for surveillance and intelligence gathering and can also be used to move supplies, including munitions. I believe absolutely that Canada has a responsibility to help Ukraine win back its territory and to defend those global rules that for over 70 years have kept the world safe. One Canadian, though, serving with the Ukrainian army says that Ottawa is hamstrung by internal problems in this country that are preventing it from helping in the way that it should. Here's what David Smith told Global News yesterday. Fixed military procurement, both for my own, you know, uh, brothers and sisters back in the Canadian armed forces, but also just to be a reliable international partner when it comes to global security. 
Now, my next guest has been following developments in this war closely for the past 24 months, including Canada's role and whether the walk from Ottawa actually matches the talk from Ottawa. It so happens that Alexander Lenoshka of the University of Waterloo was with me on the show two years ago tonight as well as Russia's full-scale invasion began and as we tried to make sense of what was unfolding in front of us in real time. Obviously, what is happening right now is quite staggering. I'm stunned. But what we know so far is that there have been explosions reported in various uh, Ukrainian cities, including even the capital city of Kiev, as well as the port city of Odessa. So this extends far beyond eastern Ukraine. Yeah, we already had a sense that this was going to be something much bigger than anything we'd seen in this conflict that had begun all the way back in 2014. And so, like we did last year on this day, we thought we'd bring Alexander back to get his thoughts on what he'd seen change and shift in this war over the past 12 months and what may lie ahead. Alexander Lenoshka is an associate professor at the University of Waterloo and a fellow at both the Macdonald-Laurier Institute here in Canada and the London-based Council on Geostrategy. Alexander, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I can't believe it's been two years already. It's, it really has gone by, in some ways, it's gone by very slowly and very quickly all at once. Um, your thoughts, I mean, just listening to, to all of that, your thoughts now, here we are two years later. I think there's been a whole bunch of things that have happened in the last year, the last six months that are interesting and worth talking about. Uh, but how about just Canada's role in all this? Because, you know, the Liberal government right from the outset have been very vocal supporters of, the, of Ukraine. And, they, you know, they have put committed a lot of money to it. I'm curious to know whether they've actually made a big difference on the ground in Ukraine or, or, or could we be doing more or do we just are we not just not able to do more? So I have a very mixed assessment on this very issue. Canada, to its credit, was one of the first and really one of the few NATO countries to provide training to Ukrainian armed forces personnel before 2022. It did so with respect to Operation Unifier. Britain was another country that did so. Um, with Operation Orbital. Canada didn't really give much in the way of military assistance, even during that time period. And when the implications of the military buildup that Russia had started in 2021 became clear, Canada was still reluctant to give military assistance of a lethal variety to Ukraine. It did so after, of course, the full-scale invasion had started on this very night tonight, uh, two years ago. But precisely because the Kane armed forces have been under-invested and neglected, that uh, we've hit a ceiling very quickly in terms of what we could provide. And really, it's not much. $2.4 billion sounds like a lot. But if you consider, say, Sweden, not even a third as rich as we are, they've provided more military assistance than we have. We've provided less than two-thirds of what Sweden has provided in terms of monetary value. We have not increase ammunition production to Ukraine, even though that is a sore need of theirs, as you've pointed out. They are fighting an artillery war. We are still doing good things. We have a lot of money and we're providing a lot of humanitarian and economic assistance. But in the military domain, I'm afraid to say that we are falling short. How is it being seen, do you think, by allies? Because there has been increasing pressure uh, on Canada to, to you know, at least try to meet our NATO target of 2% of GDP. I think that would be, given what, even what the soldier in Ukraine was talking about in terms of our procurement issues, um, I think we might have difficulty spending that amount of money uh, wisely at this point in time. But there still seems to be a desire now from allies to see Canada doing more, because I think unlike, I mean, forget Ukraine for a moment, what Ukraine revealed is how unprepared we were for anything like this happening. 
That's exactly right. And it's really unfortunate that two years later, we still seem to be very unprepared. We are one of the few, if not the only NATO country to, in fact, be cutting our defense budget, um, despite everything that's been happening around the world. That, like I said, ammunition production remains where it was before 2022. Um, that's not acceptable. And our capabilities have been stretched. We are deployed in Latvia. We have a fairly significant contingent there. We're doing a lot of good in Central and Eastern Europe, especially with respect to uh, our assistance to Ukraine and to our commitment to Latvia. But precisely, again, we've been so negligent in providing um, the resources to back up our Canadian armed forces. We are really strained and those capability gaps will only widen. To our credit, we do a lot of operations and training uh, missions, and so we are useful. And as much as our NATO allies are frustrated with our inability or undesire to, or lack of desire to spend more, we, we are doing quite a bit. But even so, we are hitting those ceilings rather quickly. And considering that we're committing our armed forces to tackle forest fires and whatnot here at home, those challenges are only going to increase in the foreseeable future. Yeah. What have you made? Uh, I mean, there's been, you know, there was sort of unequivocal support uh, at the outset two years ago. And I think we saw something quite similar a year ago. I think support for, for Canada's efforts to help Ukraine is still strong, but we are seeing some slippage. And I think there has been a politicization of this, which was kind of inevitable given if the longer this war went on people questioning whether it was worth the money, whether it was worth spending this amount of money to defend a country that most people, I mean, let's be honest, I don't think that many people, I don't think a vast majority of people could, could find mm-hmm. it on a map, right? Uh, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, we've, we've entered a, a period now, and we're certainly seeing it in the United States, where the war in Ukraine, even though it is, it is in many ways still properly described as a fight for for democracy in some senses uh, against, mm-hmm. against an autocratic leader, that that argument has started to slip a bit. How are you seeing it just with in the circles that you're in? Yeah, I don't think political leaders have done a necessarily good job in trying to explain the rationale for the military support and assistance that has, has been provided to Ukraine or really to prepare publics for what would be a very difficult conflict. Ukraine, to be sure, had a lot of success in 2022, much more than what was anticipated at that time, people expected Russia to basically run roughshod and to impose a strategic victory in a matter of days. That did not happen. Um, Ukraine, in some respects, has become a victim of its own success because people were expecting much more of the counteroffensive last year, and that simply did not materialize precisely because counteroffensives are really difficult to do, and Russia had the time to dig in. So, I think there was a lot of naivete, a lot of optimism that was created in the aftermath of Ukraine's earlier successes and just a lack of leadership, quite frankly, on this file to demonstrate to public, including that which we have here in Canada, to say this is going to take a while. It's going to be um, difficult to watch at times. This might be costly to us, although, of course, uh, a lot of our domestic issues that we have here right now with respect to our economy have very little to do with uh, that war itself. Um, there hasn't really been much leadership to this effect. And I think that is why, uh, at least in some quarters of society, support has been f- uh, sagging uh, with respect to Ukraine. 
Alexander Ladoshka of the University of Waterloo, the Department of International Relations there is with us this half hour. We're talking about, he was with us two years ago tonight as the invasion, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine began by Russia. We were trying to make sense of it on air as it was unfolding, as we were getting sort of dribs and drabs coming out of just how widespread it was. It soon became clear that this was going to be an attempt to take the capital and to take a great chunk of the country, uh, which of course didn't happen. And here we are 24 months later, this war goes on. It feels like it's been a bit of a stalemate, but you know, what's happened over the two years is that the the sort of the vagaries of international politics have now started to get involved and uh, different countries go through different cycles. And what we're watching right now, of course, is the US. I think the Ukrainians tonight, Alexander, are probably watching, continue to watch the US very closely. Chuck Schumer, uh, the Senate speaker was there today in Lviv, uh, sort of offering his support. But I suppose when it all boils down to it, it's what the Americans wind up doing with this aid and the presidential election in uh, November that may go a long way to determining on how solid a footing Ukraine is this time next year. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll see what happens with the aid bill. It's in the House, uh, which is currently in uh, recess at the moment. But... um, you know, thankfully, I, I think we're starting to see a little more um, from the Europeans, especially from the Nordic countries. They're continuing to announce new aid packages. Uh, the European Union was able to uh, unblock uh, the veto uh, posed by Hungary to provide uh, additional military and economic assistance to Ukraine. That will be useful. Of course, uh, the European Union does move very slowly and it's already falling very short of its targets in terms of providing ammunition to Ukraine. But it does seem that there is a concern about the United States, and that concern has motivated European allies to take more initiative. But again, European Union is complex. Things are slow. Uh, It's a very diverse group of countries over there. And so it's not going to be a, a perfect substitute by any means uh, for the United States, precisely because the United States is indispensable in its provision of military assistance to Ukraine. Yeah, I was wondering what we would have thought two years ago if we had said that by now, two years later, that um, that Finland and Sweden uh, would be NATO members, or at least almost NATO. Uh, Finland, for sure. I mean, that NATO would expand because of this, that NATO would actually find its purpose again in some ways because of this war. It has, but I would not even exaggerate the effect uh, the full-scale invasion has had. NATO has rediscovered its deterrence and defense mission after 2014, and we have seen defense expenditures rise across much, if not all, of the alliance since then. And indeed, I would say that the reason why Ukraine was able to receive as much military assistance that it has from its European partners is precisely because there have been a number of countries that have made those sorts of investments, thereby giving them the strategic preparedness, as it were, to respond and to give ammunition, weapons, and so forth in a relatively timely manner. Of course, there have been issues about the quality of some of the equipment. There have been a number of equipment, pieces of equipment that have been in storage for very long and were not in proper battle condition. But even so... I've, at least with my colleague Jordan Becker at West Point, have found pretty good re- evidence that strategic preparedness of the sort that I've described did shape a lot of NATO's uh, members' um, responsiveness to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine on the part of Russia.
On the other side, Russia this time last year, I mean, we were talking about a Ukrainian counteroffensive that didn't really materialize, at least it wasn't successful. And Russia seemed to be on the back foot. In the last 12 months, specifically, I guess, in the last six months, we've seen Russia sort of, it feels like against against what many had predicted, sort of start to replenish itself a little faster than we thought they would. Now, clearly, they have allies helping them too. What do you make of, of what's happening on the other side of this fight? I think it's still a mixed picture for Russia. On the ground for Ukraine, the situation is brutal because of those ammunition shortages we've been describing. Russia still seems to be throwing lots of personnel and metal at Ukraine. They have recently taken some settlements or cities in eastern Ukraine, but they have done so at great cost. And so even though Ukraine really is on the back foot at the moment, Russia does not seem to have the wherewithal to take full advantage. And that's just the situation on the ground. If we widen our aperture and consider what's happening in the Black Sea, we see that the Black Sea fleet that Russia has has suffered tremendous attrition. They've lost another landing ship about that long ago. In the air, they have suffered losses just today. They appear to have lost a second A-50 aircraft, which is useful for early um, warning surveillance. And indeed, Russia only has a handful of those. So it's a very big loss. So it's due to friendly fire on the part of Russian air defense, but Ukrainian air defense, but still, it's a significant loss. And so it's a very mixed picture. And so I, I think it would be a mistake just to focus on simply one element, but how those elements interact with one another is up for debate. I tend to think that what happens on the ground is the most critical uh, theater, precisely because people live on land and the fighting is mostly on land. But nevertheless, uh, Russia has been still experiencing uh, tremendous difficulties all the same. Yeah, I mean, here we are. We're still talking about this war two years after it was meant to only take a few days, right? Which in of itself has said something. Vladimir Putin is looking a little more confident these days, but he's by no means achieved anywhere near what he was hoping to achieve in Ukraine. Where do you see this going now? Because I don't feel like there's, it doesn't feel like there's any, I mean, we, you never know, but it doesn't feel like there's a great chance of a breakthrough on either side here. There is, I mean, there is sort of some political pressure about trying to sort of negotiate something. It doesn't feel like either side I mean, certainly Vladimir Putin has no interest in negotiating on anything that would look like what Ukraine wants. And the Ukrainians certainly are, seem to have no desire to negotiate with Vladimir Putin right now. But I mean, what do you see happening in the next six to 12 months in this? It feels like we're kind of in a stalemate and it doesn't look like there's any, it doesn't look like it's going to change, at least not in the near future. Well, war is very difficult to predict. It's does not proceed linearly. Uh, we have already seen a various uh, uh emotional swings unfold over the course of the 12, last 12 months. My general perspective is that for as long as Putin lives, this war is going to happen in some form or another. What could very well, very well be the intensity and the scope of the fighting. But as you've pointed out in your own question, there's no interest on the Russian side to negotiate. It's important to bear in mind that Russia's war aims have been virtually unchanged since February 2022. Russia still seeks Ukraine territory for its own sake, as well as regime change in Kyiv. And so as long as those are the war aims and Russia is throwing war material at Ukraine, then Ukraine really has very little choice but to resist as forcefully as possible. Alexander, as always, I hope we speak again before uh, a year from now, but thank you so much for joining me again. Well, I hope we'll be speaking on better terms, but yes, I hope the situation Indeed. does improve for Ukraine and that uh, 
there'll be much more uh, optimism in the air than what is currently the case right now. Yeah. Alexander, thank you as always. Thank you. As the war arrived on the doorsteps of so many Ukrainians, Canada opened its doors to those looking for refuge, uh, seeking issuing temporary emergency visas to some 935 thousand people. Now, that's a lot of people. Only a third of those who are issued those visas actually use them to come here, uh, meaning Canada's welcomed about 210,000 people, so less than a third over the past 24 months. Here's the Prime Minister speaking about that and other things yesterday. We've welcomed hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians uh, to Canada so they can uh, hunker down throughout the duration of this war, however long it lasts, uh, and be there to support them. Uh, we have uh, sent close to two and a half billion dollars uh, worth, or committed close to two and a half billion dollars worth of military aid uh, that continues to flow to Ukraine. Yeah, send and commit. There's always a bit of a difference between that. The number of Ukrainians coming to Canada uh, could increase quite quickly, actually, over the next month and a bit, as the deadline to use those emergency visas and receive a three-year worker study permit under the program and financial settlement supports actually expires at the end of March. You can still use the visa after that, but you don't get those other uh, benefits that come with it. According to recent stats, as many as 90,000 emergency visa holders are considering the move before the deadline. How many of them actually come? We shall see. But how are those who are already here settling in? Two years ago tonight, Tatiana Sunak, a Ukrainian-Canadian from Toronto, was actually in Kyiv working as a private school principal and was about to wake up to an unfamiliar sound, the sound of explosions. She quickly made her way to the border with Poland and ultimately got back to Canada several days later. But she's continued to work with students and teachers in Ukraine and with Ukrainian families that have fled the war to come here. Uh, Sunak is now vice principal at Lakeshore Collegiate Institute in Toronto. She's principal of a Ukrainian Saturday school in Toronto as well. And she joins me. Tatiana, thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, thank you for having me. I know anniversaries are, are, are really just days, but they have a way of, of conjuring up memories, um, good and bad. Tell me about this day or tomorrow, two years ago. You woke up in Kiev. Yes, I did wake up in Kiev from, I heard something strange, and uh, then I realized that it was, it did sound like a bomb. Uh, the first thing that I thought I have to escape called. Um, call taxi to go to the airport, of course, to find out that all airports are closed and find a way, found a way uh, to get to the west part of Ukraine, thanks to my dear friends who I still have in Ukraine. And then, um, and then start my journey to the, through Polish border, which took me 24 hours. Had to walk almost 24 kilometers to the border because uh, the cars were just not moving. And then took me 20 hours to get through the border, which was probably the most difficult experience because again, difficult in a way that I never seen people degrading as much as I seen them in that moment. When this, the, this survival the survival instincts were more than anything else. And it's very difficult to see because, again, as educators, we, wanna, uh, we want people to be empathetic. We want people to uh, support each other, help each other. And that's not what I saw there. That was very difficult. Yeah. And again, it's probably difficult, more difficult for me because I'm an educator. And this is not what, and being in Canada for so many years, 
um, I never experienced anything like that. So it was very traumatic experience. Right. And so listeners, remember, most of those who were heading out at that time were women and children and the elderly, those the men couldn't leave. So you were seeing lots of families, lots of kids, lots of kids, probably the same age as the kids you were teaching back or you were the principal of the school back in, in Kiev. Yes, well, there was more, mostly um, mothers with little kids, and there were a lot of uh, students who were trying to get out. And um, and I understand their frustration because they were trying to get out. They did not expect that the war going to start, even regardless of all the warnings. And again, I was one of those people. I did not believe that the war going to start. And they were frustrated and they were trying to get through the border and they did not care about little little kids and they were pushing and trying to get through through the one little door that or not even the door, the gate that was opening every five minutes and was letting two, three people through. And um, there was probably 3,000, 4,000 people in that small area packed like sardines. And yeah. uh, it, was, it was hard. It was very difficult. You, you got back to Canada, and like so many that had uh, solid ground to step back onto, I, I gather right away your eyes turned back to Ukraine and how you could help, how you could help from afar. I did not stop supporting them. I did not stop helping them. Um, Again, I'm still in touch with uh, teachers and students at uh, the school where I I was, and um, I talk to them probably every at least once a week. Uh, I'm planning a trip for a group of Ukrainian students to Canada, which I hope going to happen sometimes in and uh, April and July, and. Um, here, again, I cannot, I do what I can, but I help uh, them from Canada. Um, I help them by organizing teachers to provide online lessons. For example, last, uh, last year, we had, um, I made a call for all the Canadian educators and 150 teachers volunteered to teach online those kids who were, they did not have classes, who were misplaced. Uh, this year, um, our Canadian teachers are supporting Ukrainian teachers on how to teach in classes, in multi-level classes. So again, I helped what, and I do what I can from here. I help families that are already here. I provide workshops for parents. I support them any way I can. And um, not just as in my role as the vice principal of uh, high school, principal of the Saturday school, but also on a city level, national level, organize other people to support and help newcomers as much as we can. How has that progressed over the past two years? I was telling you that, that when 
when people first started to arrive in Canada, we spoke to fam- we spoke to young couples, we spoke to moms with kids, and just to get a sense of what what their experience in Canada had been like. And of course, it's difficult to come to this to any new country if you don't have a big support system, if you don't know a lot of people. It's obviously expensive finding all the things we know. Finding housing is expensive, and so on. How has it been in your experience over the past two years for those who've come to Canada? at least temporarily, uh, while war rages on at home? Uh, what I've seen that um, a lot of them are going back. Uh, the ones who, especially those parents who do not have English and uh, they cannot afford to live in Toronto. I know some families uh, moved to Winnipeg, but even there it's getting more expensive. Um, just today, I signed the papers, um, the med papers for one of the students who is going back to, uh, they're going back to Germany, hopefully with the hope that eventually when the war is uh, over, going back to Ukraine. And I ask them, why are you going back? And the answer is always the same. There is no jobs. Uh, the rental is so expensive that they cannot afford it. And the biggest issue that there is no jobs and uh, they're willing to do any job. And um, I was asking mom that um, that was signing off today. I was asking her, did you work on your profession? And she said, of course not. But they're willing to do any jobs, but there is nothing available. And that's the problem. And in that case, so so in other words, they simply don't see a future here for them, which is which is in of itself is is, I think, disappointing for for what we what Canada saw itself as. I mean, I know it's been a safe haven for many uh, tens of thousands of Ukrainians fleeing the war, but one would hope it would be not only a safe haven but a place that might feel like home too. Yes, and I think a lot of them do, and I think a lot of them will stay, and a lot of. Um, adapting well, but those who do not have English, this is uh, the, this is the group that is find the biggest challenge because with no English they can they cannot find any jobs, and uh, with no job they cannot afford to be there because whatever support they're getting are not enough. Like we all know that it's not enough to uh, to pay even like they, there is nothing they can do for the money that they are getting. Tatiana Sunak is vice principal at Lakeshore Collegiate Institute in the Toronto area. She's also principal of the Ukrainian Saturday School in Toronto. And uh, she has a lot of contact with Ukrainians who've come to this country uh, since the war began or since the further invasion of Ukraine began two years ago tomorrow. Tatiana, we're, we are, I think, expecting, I mean, there's a deadline coming up at the end of March. We are expecting more people to come. Um, how is how is the ability of for the country to help those coming changed if at all it feels like there's been less attention obviously and that must mean less money for the kinds of groups that help um people coming from ukraine settle in at least temporarily i know that uh, people are tired of this war and i understand that and um and there is more people that will be coming uh, i was just looking at um stats yesterday so as to as of today 221,000 came into canada but there is 9,000 applications that were already approved. So if all of them will come to Canada, we will see increase of almost a million of Ukrainians, new Ukrainians in Canada. Ukrainian community supports them a lot. And I think this is what uh, 
probably good and bad because Ukrainian community is very strong in Toronto. They do support the newcomers a lot, but their resources are, I would say that there is lack of resources now because whatever they had, they don't have anymore. And, um, and I feel or what I see that people just generally tired. They're tired of talking about the war. Um, very strange one. Like I was talking to somebody a couple months ago and they asked me, oh, the war is still going on? I said, yes, it's still going on. It never stopped. And it's even worse now than it was uh, half a year ago. People don't hear about this anymore. It's not on their mind anymore. And um, the help is much less now than it used to be. I mean, that that inevitably happens with war. It happened in 2014, right? I mean, there was all this attention paid after Russia moved into the east and after the illegal annexation of Crimea. And then sort of the world kind of turned away and then turned back again uh, eight years later when this all started up again. How about how about you? Just your hopes, your hopes for the future. Um, I mean, you I know your story. You came to Canada in the early 90s and then went back to a very different Kiev than the one that you'd left many, many, many. Or actually, you're from the West, but you went back to a very different Kiev than the one that would have been existed when you were there. Uh, growing up, uh, do you have any hopes of ever hopefully going back and, and seeing it again and, and and living there again? I would love to, and I am hoping that I will have a chance. And you know what? It's not that I'm hoping. I know that I will go back. Uh, the minute the war is over, I will go back to help rebuild. And I know that I believe in Ukrainian people. They are so resilient. And they're so hardworking, they will rebuild Ukraine. And it's going to be even better than it was before. And the only thing that we are all praying for, for this war to end. Uh, because um, watching today, the 20 days of Mariupol, and mm. um, it's it was heartbreaking. We had all our Ukrainian students and Canadian students from Lakeshore watching that documentary. It's... Um, it's unbelievable. It's that you watching the documentary and you cannot believe that it's actually happening. It's happening today, and um, it's not. It's not some movie from the Second World War. So it's very sad. Tatiana, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. As the second anniversary of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine arrives, the Russian army is showing a remarkable capacity, it seems, to take uh, punishment and regenerate itself at a speed with which Western military leaders and experts had not really anticipated this time a year ago. Sanctions have been the main weapon used by the West to try to increase the cost of this war to Vladimir Putin and Russia. And new ones were announced today, including by Canada, the UK, uh, the EU, and the US. The Americans are imposing roughly 600 new sanctions targeting Russia's financial sector, defense industrial base, and procurement networks. Former US Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Mick Mulroy says the move will take a bite out of Russia's war effort. You can't expect Russia to change its activities based on sanctions, and they do take a long time to work, but it does have an effect. It obviously has consequences. 
But it comes as Ukraine continues to warn that delays in delivering aid, particularly U.S. aid, are harming those on the front lines. The Joe Biden administration and the U.S. Congress have directed about $75 billion, $75 billion in assistance to Ukraine, which includes humanitarian, financial, and military support. Uh, Global News' Crystal Gomancing, though, spoke with two Canadians serving with the Ukrainian army about what it is really like on the front lines. Here's what one of them had to say. Every single battle I've been, it's been overwhelming Russian artillery hammering our positions and less, significantly less shells going back towards the Russians. It does definitely wear on you for sure, being in those positions with the amount of drones and how much the Russians have here. But everyone here still is highly motivated. So are we reaching a critical stage in this fight? Has Russia found a way to use its obvious numerical advantages to wear down the Ukrainians, relying on support from its allies, such as Iran, North Korea, and even China, as Ukraine waits for promises made to become promises delivered? Joining me now is retired Australian Major General Mick Ryan. He's a fellow with the Centre for Strategic and International Studies and an adjunct scholar at the Modern War Institute at West Point. He's also author of War Transformed. He's been with us before. Uh, Welcome back. Thank you so much. Yeah, g'day, Ben. It's great to speak with you again. It feels like, I mean, here we are on the two-year anniversary of this full-scale war in Ukraine, or the full-scale invasion, at least, and it feels like we've reached something of a critical point. I don't know whether you see it in that lens, but it feels like we're at a pretty important juncture in this battle. Yeah, I think right from the start, two years ago, most people probably didn't expect to still be talking about this or the war still to be going after two years, but I think after the first month it became clear that this was going to be a protracted conflict, unfortunately, for the people of Ukraine. Um, I think, you know, after the failure of last year's counter-offences, Ukraine this year really will be looking at reconstitution of its forces, clearly with a new uh, military commander-in-chief, it's re-looking at its military strategy for this year and beyond. And the third element of this is uh, Ukraine re-looking at its supporters to ensure they continue the flow of assistance, of training, of in- intelligence, of financial aid. Uh, Europe and countries like Canada have clearly either sustained or stepped that up, and it says a lot of great things about uh, those kind of countries, I think. Uh, but the US is a concern. Uh, it provides 50% of the military assistance to Ukraine, and it is really vital uh, that they continue to do so. When one looks at um, at momentum, and I, I don't often like to talk about this sort of something as sports-like as momentum in a war, but it feels like Russia feels like they're in a better place this year than they were a year ago today. No, momentum is a thing in, in, in warfare, whether it's battlefield momentum or strategic momentum. I think it would be fair to say that Russia has a strategic initiative in this war. It is the one that is deciding where and when battles are initiated and fought. Ukraine is not. Now, uh, at the high level, Ukraine still retains a very capable strike complex. It's able to hit Russian oil export infrastructure. It's able to hit Russian naval vessels in the Black Sea to keep its maritime trade routes open. But I think in the broad, Russia does currently have the initiative And I think you can see this through Putin's uh, engagements over the last few months. He is looking more confident. He's certainly looking uh, far chippier than he has in the last couple of years. And it's like he senses he has an opportunity this year to pull off what he aimed to do this time two years ago. How did that happen? Because 
a year ago, it looked as if we were talking about Ukraine's counteroffensive coming up in the spring and the summer. Um, Russia looked like it was on the back foot. Certainly, they were losing an inordinate number of, of servant people, soldiers they were sending to the front. They were in bad shape uh, when it came to equipment and so on. And it feels like somehow in the past year, uh, that has been rectified to some extent. And no doubt they're getting help, too, right? I mean, their allies are helping them out. Well, I think there's a there's a few contributing factors here. The first one is Russia just persevered. It never gave up. Uh, it just kept pushing, even though that meant it was throwing away the lives of tens of thousands of its ethnic minorities and, and criminals to do so. It just kept pushing. But in doing so, it learned, and it's learned and adapted. And as a, a result of that, it's adapted its uh, defence industry to increase production and, and increase assistance from places like Iran and North Korea. Uh, it's adapted its uh, export regime, so it continue to finance Putin's war against the Ukrainian people. Uh, but at the same time, I think that uh, many, of, uh, many of us probably underestimated Russia's capacity to learn and sustain its war effort. I think the counteroffensive last year was a failure of humility for a couple of reasons. I think we failed to appreciate that even though we saw these Russian defences being built, even though we'd learned over 18 months that the battlefield had become more transparent, we still believe that 1990s doctrine with World War II mine clearance technology would win the day, and it just didn't. So I think there's a few contributing factors for why we are where we are now. But I think on the upside, you are seeing European countries come to the party more with assistance. They are stepping up production. And whilst that is late, it is not too late. Yeah, looking at, I mean, there's been clips of that were broadcast in Canada of Canadian soldiers on the front line, uh, Canadian soldiers serving in Ukraine on the front lines, talking about the, the consequences of the lack of ammunition that they have, that they feel like they're being outgunned now, which, of course, wasn't the case as far as we could tell maybe a year ago. Yeah, that, that uh, is a very big deal. I mean, you just can't sugarcoat these shortages in munitions, not just artillery. I think air defence munitions will become an issue at, at some point as well. And, and I would hate to see the Russian Air Force being able to overwhelm the Ukrainians because of that. Uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, big, long wars like this require the mobilisation of people and populations uh, they require the mobilisation of industry to a degree that we have not done for decades, but it also requires the mobilisation of new ideas to integrate some of these new technologies that we're seeing in this war. But most importantly, it needs the mobilisation of political and national will, not just in Ukraine, we've seen that, but in uh, the countries of NATO and other Western countries as well. And that is still a work in progress. Yeah, and it always felt like a vulnerability too, because understanding the regime in, in Russia, although there were always predictions that Putin was was going to lose support over this, that eventually Russians would tire of this war if they didn't win it quickly enough. But when you look at regimes like Iran and China and and, and North Korea, none of the political pressures that that uh, that Ukraine's allies face internally. And that that I think we're seeing parts of the results of that over the last 12 months? Well, I think um, a lot of the research is now showing that this war is actually quite a popular one in Russia because it's right. increasing average incomes of a lot of sections of 
Russian society. That is enormously popular, uh, even if it means uh, a lot of young men and women are coming home in caskets. A lot of families have never seen the kind of money that they're seeing as a result of the blood money that Putin is paying for his for the meat tactics and other uh, ways he's approaching this war. Retired Australian Major General Mick Ryan is with us this half hour. His book is called War Transformed. We're talking about uh, the military uh, situation on the battlefield in Ukraine. Here we are two years in. Um, Mick, it's, it's hard, to look, hard to see any breakthrough. I mean, there hasn't really been much in the way of movement on the battlefield. Uh, it feels over the past year, no big breakthroughs, maybe a couple little um, surrenders here and there of, of territory. But, uh, you know, at one point, I guess, in any war, as was uh, as your colleague uh, Lawrence Friedman was mentioning today, at one point, one side decides the benefits are no longer worth the cost. But it doesn't feel like we're anywhere near there yet. No, I don't think we're anywhere near that. And there's no prospect of that in 2024. But also, I think, you know, we can look to history for insights here. And certainly, if we were to look at 1916 on the Western Front, uh, I think you would have gone, wow, this doesn't look good. How long is this going to go on for? But what we did see is the Allies and Germans start to experiment with new organisations and new ideas that uh, allowed them to better merge old and new technologies to solve some of the really difficult battlefield problems that face them. And that's where we're at in Ukraine. There are some very difficult battlefield problems that require intellectual um, work and some reorganisational stuff that might result in different kinds of tactics and breakthroughs in the coming year or two. But that work needs to be done with NATO and the Ukrainians. And, uh, you know, it is either ongoing or not begun, but will be really important if we're going to see a change in the trajectory of this war. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess every war teaches new lessons. What does that look like in terms of innovation now that we're two years into this full-scale war? What would innovation, I mean, we've seen some, but from your point of view, and you know this well, what kind of innovations have we seen and what might we see? Well, I think um, one of the biggest problems we need to solve that will require a range of different uh, intellectual and technological innovations is being able to uh, mass forces Uh, without the enemy detecting them or striking them. That's a really important problem that has to be solved. There's not a solution for that at the moment. A second one is how do you cross distances, whether it's across the battlefield or across operational distances in the Pacific, without the enemy interdicting you and degrading your ability to attack them once you get where you're going? I think they're two really important lessons that are all problems that need to be solved. And the third one is, how do you control the air above you so the enemy can't use drones for surveillance, loitering munitions, uh, glide bombs, and a range of contemporary weapons? So, you know, if Ukraine was to solve those three big operational problems this year, it would put them in a very good position for 2025. Right, because I suppose what it seems unlikely that any one side in this battle is going to achieve a complete victory. I mean, it just, I mean, I know that stranger things have happened, but that doesn't feel like what's going to happen. It feels like what needs to be done on the Ukrainian side is to give them enough momentum and enough, enough of a, of a sort of a, a leg up in all this to be able to sit down with the Russians and negotiate something at some point. Uh, because, you know, I, I mean, I, I just don't think an ongoing, a war of this scale is, is doable for Ukraine. I mean, they're losing on both sides. The blood and treasure is, is significant. It doesn't feel like it can be infinite. 
No, I mean, no war can go forever, but we've seen these kind of wars go for long times before. Now, I'm not suggesting it's like the Peloponnesian War, Mm. which I think went for something like 27 years. Uh, And as uh, Laurie Friedman said uh, on your program, you know, uh, at some point, one side decides that the investment in blood and treasure is no longer worth the objectives thereafter. Um, One of the sides may get to that point. I don't see it this year um, and potentially not 2025, depending on, you know, who is the new US president, what level of support arrives for Ukraine. But 25, 26 could see something like that occur potentially. Yeah. And yet, when we think about it, you know, this was a war that was meant to end in days, or at least an invasion that was meant to be over in days, when thinking about the Russian side. And here we are two years later, and we're still here. And and, and again, Vladimir Putin hasn't achieved nearly what he had hoped to achieve in Ukraine. It doesn't look like he's very close to achieving it now. Yeah, I mean, every generation flirts with this idea of lightning wars. It's uh, it's a pretty old idea. If you the beginning of World War One, you know, the Germans thought, you know, the um, and Ludendorff would be able to get the war over in the first few months with grand manoeuvres through France. The same, the start of World War Two, you know, the Germans thought they could knock the French out of the war and then knock the Russians out of the war quickly. And then, you know, uh, 2003, uh, shock and awe. So everyone kind of flirts with the idea that you could do quick, cheap uh, wars, uh, and most time it doesn't work out like that, particularly if you have two large, well-resourced countries that have profound ideological stakes in a conflict. That's what we're seeing here. Uh, I think the Russians, you know, planned poorly and thought poorly before this war, made bad assumptions. And that's what's resulted in this terrible war that has been a, a catastrophe for the people of Ukraine. Yeah, we should never lose sight of that, of course. This has been an incredibly destructive war for Ukraine, and the rebuilding process will be long and painful, no doubt. Uh, When you look back then over the last two years, what strikes you the most about this? Because we had all kinds of assumptions beforehand. You know, there were lots of debates about whether Russia would invade or not. Ultimately, they did. Um, It was then predicted it would be over very quickly. It hasn't been. No one's really been able to achieve much in the way of victory over the last 24 months at this point. Uh, What stood out to you over over in this one so far as as the learning for all of us? Gosh, there's there's a lot of lessons that come out of this. Um, I guess... I picked three, um, and none of them are new lessons. Their lessons were re- relearned. Firstly, surprise is continuous. It's it's an enduring part of warfare. Even with the best satellites and sensors and being able to see the battlefield, seeing things and understanding what's going on are two very different things, and we've been surprised all the way through this war by both Ukraine and Russia, and that's been ongoing, You know whether it is the Russian failure north of Kiev, some of the battles we've seen, sinking of Russian vessels. So surprise is, is enduring and, and will continue to happen. A second one, I think, is a big lesson for Western countries about how unprepared we are for future war, uh, not just in our industrial capacity or our stockpiles of munitions, but also the kind of technologies we thought might be useful have been proven to be not as useful without injections of new drones or GPS dramas or electronic warfare. But I think the third and probably the most important lesson that has been relearned is the centrality of good leadership. Um, you know, if you have good leaders at different levels, it makes a profound difference. I think Zelensky has been the finest leader of this war for a range of different reasons. I mean, he's not perfect. No one is. And he's probably made a couple of bad calls. But overall, he's made far more good decisions than bad. 
uh, particularly in the first few months of the war when he was a very inexperienced national or wartime leader. And I think there'll be people studying his leadership style, Zeluzhny's leadership style, uh, Putin's leadership style, Gerasimov and Shoigu's leadership styles, good and bad, for many generations to come. Mick, as always, thank you. Thanks, Ben. It's great to talk to you again. And Slava Ukraini. Two years ago tonight, as we were on air, it happened. And we were trying to make sense of it as it unfolded. So tonight we're just looking back. Uh, we've spoken to a bunch of different people, including in Kiev and so on. Um, and now we're going to speak to our UN ambassador, Bob Ray. Again, uh, to mark the anniversary in response, uh, mark the anniversary of the invasion, as well as in response to the death last week in prison of Kremlin critic and Putin adversary Alexei Navalny. Ukraine, uh, Canada, Britain, and the US are imposing new sanctions on Russia. So is the European Union. It comes, though, as concerns grow over a US aid bill for Ukraine passed by the Senate that is stalled in the House. And as Ukrainian forces say, they are running very low on ammunition and weaponry. As that is all taking place, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who's a Democrat, was in Ukraine today in the West in Lviv to try to reassure President Volodymyr Zelensky and others that Congress will deliver this aid as, as soon as possible. We have come here to tell the Ukrainian people we are with you. The United States is with you. We will not abandon you. Vladimir Zelensky, meantime, uh, thanked the U.S. for its support during his meeting with Schumer today, but also said that delays in aid from the U.S. and other Western countries are creating an opening for Russia to make advances on the battlefield. I know that Americans on the side of truth and we share common values. And thank you very much that you are helping us to save democracy not only in Ukraine, of course, fight for democracy and freedom in the world. Well, indeed. But as we arrive on this somber anniversary, Putin, of course, has crushed all opposition to him and the war in Ukraine in Russia since his, quote-unquote, special military operation began. Even major setbacks in the war, and those have happened, have seemed to have had little effect on his ability. He survived what appeared to be a very strange uh, coup attempt, got rid of uh, the Wagner Group's head as well, as Sergei Prigozhin. Uh, and so as we sit here on the second anniversary, I mean, there'd been lots of talk early on about how vulnerable Vladimir Putin might be if this war were to go wrong. And that doesn't seem, at least from the out from the outside, does not seem to have been the case. Instead, he has, in fact, united, kind of united the country to some extent um, to accept that this is going to be a long fight. Polls have shown that Russians, I mean, polls, how, I don't know how accurate polls in Russia are, but polls have shown that Russians generally support the war, if not with a whole lot of enthusiasm. And the death in prison last week of Vladimir Putin's most noted and vocal critic, Alexei Navalny, is a reminder that he appears to face no threat on his hold to power as this war drags on. Canada's UN Ambassador Bob Ray has had a front row seat to the diplomatic battle that's going on around the war in Ukraine. He posted on social media last week that Putin murdered Navalny just as surely as if he'd strangled him with his bare hands, so not mincing words there. And he says that it underscores the corruption and ruthlessness of Vladimir Putin, adding that allies of Ukraine must redouble their efforts to be uh, their efforts now because a Russian win would be a setback for global democracy. And Bob Ray joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. Good to be with you. Two years. I, I mean, I think we spoke early on, uh, probably in sometime in March of, of 2022. When you look back, you've been on the front lines of the diplomacy around this, or at least some of it, both good and bad. What has surprised you about the past 24 months? Uh, I, I still think the, the great achievement uh, is that Ukraine 
was able to withstand the initial assault uh, from the Russians and I believe surprised, surprised the entire world. Certainly most of the military experts that were busy tweeting and offering free advice to everybody about how quickly this would all be over because there was no comparing the military strength uh, of Russia to the military strength of Ukraine. And that that remains the case. I mean, I think we're at a critical moment now. Uh, but when I think of the whole two-year experience, I think the fact that we're still here and talking about a situation where uh, beyond the initial advances in the East, which the Russians made, some of the counterattacks which the U Ukrainians have made, the border has remained remarkably similar. Russia has not anywhere near achieved the objectives which it originally set out to do. Uh, many losses on the naval side, serious destruction of their ability to block uh, the export of uh, produce out of Odessa. There's certainly no room for complacency on either side, but I still think um, it is a war that is ongoing, which I think we all have to emphasize no one expected at the outset. I think the other thing we all have to remember is that the losses on both sides have been have been enormous um, and that there are many other things that have gone on that are deeply troubling that I'm happy to talk about and answer to you any of your of your questions. And and it's it is it is from a humanitarian point of view. It's a it's a disastrous uh, situation. Yeah, we had the director of 20 Days in Mariupol on just a few weeks ago talking about just one example of the sort of war crimes that have been uh, perpetrated in Ukraine since the beginning of this full-scale invasion. Ukraine's resistance, though, threw a challenge to the West to stand up. I mean, we sort of turned our, collectively turned away from Crimea when Putin went in and annexed there. Uh, and now all of a sudden, Ukraine was fighting back. And I think there was a big push amongst Western nations to actually stand up alongside Ukraine. How do you think we've done in the past 24 months, specifically in the past six months? Well, that's a hard question to answer in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a simple sentence. Mm -hmm. My answer is, uh, I, I think we provided a lot of assistance to Ukraine, but I, I think it's still, the whole Western strategy has been constrained from the outset by the original positioning of, the, uh, of NATO and of the American government and all of our governments which was to say, look, let's do, let's do th these things. Let's make sure that we're supporting Ukraine. We're doing what we can to ensure that Ukraine can respond effectively to the attack. At the same time, <clears throat> let's make sure Russia doesn't win a big victory. And third, let's make sure that the war itself does not spread. Immediately from the very outset, the position of the West has been, I would say, let's play defense all the way. And I think we, we have to recognize that the fear that any significant setback for Russia would be met by a wider conflagration, whether in terms of the weaponry that the Russians use or the Russians saying, okay, you guys want to do this. We're going to spread the war further in different directions. I think that has meant that the, the Western military position has been extremely defensive. That has its limits, frankly. I do think that we have asked Ukraine to say, you know, to play with and to fight this war with very clear limits on what we say we're prepared to give them the weaponry to do. So that ordinarily in a war, if someone attacks you from 
uh, a military base that's 30 miles inside, you know, the Russian border, you'd say, well, if if Russia is attacking us from that military base, we're allowed to attack that base. Under the rules of war, that's allowed. That's that's not a an offensive, aggressive uh, response. It's a it's a defensive response because you're dealing with the source of the aggression, with all the other incumbent rules about protecting civilians and 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 ensuring as as low a level of civilian loss of life as as is humanly possible. But Ukrainians have not, in effect, not been allowed to do that. Uh, they've been told, no, you can't do that. And so there have been some instances where that's been done. There's some instances where, you know, they've sunk ships. They've, they've sunk ships at harbor in Crimea. They've done a whole variety of totally remarkable things. They've, uh, they've been very successful in, in drone uh, warfare and, and in drone counterattacks. And they, they've, they've done a, an amazingly strong job at holding off you know, attacks on, on uh, uh, you know, from the air, which has meant that a lot of lives have been saved. Uh, and the level of civilian losses uh, in Ukraine is is a lot lower than it otherwise could have been, and and I certainly don't think anybody <laughs> in the West can can point any fingers and say, well, you know, we, they're not fighting hard enough, and but they are fighting hard enough. They're fighting as as hard as people could possibly imagine they could fight, and they've taken very heavy losses. Many accounts that we've heard from uh, people involved in humanitarian work in Kiev and in other cities in Ukraine and who are in charge of the, the overall humanitarian situation uh, throughout the country um, have expressed deep concern about uh, the ability to house and to feed and to take care of millions of people who've been displaced by by this war at the same time as they're fighting on the ground of a very, very difficult and costly conflict. Bob Ray is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. We're talking tonight about the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which comes up tomorrow. Uh, Bob, I was noticing on, on your on your social media feeds that uh, that you've been reacting quite strongly to the uh, well, to, well, to the death of, of Alexei Navalny, which uh, today it's emerged uh, apparently it was due to natural causes, although uh, he, he was certainly uh, set up that way. It just strikes me that that here we are, two years into this conflict. Russia has been slapped with sanctions. You know, obviously, there's still support from other countries such as China, and North Korea, and so on, and Iran. Uh, but his ability to act with impunity doesn't seem to have waned at all. And I thought the Navalny death was sort of another symbol, another thumbing of the nose uh, to the rest of the world, at least those who who espouse democratic ideals. I mean, people have to come to grips with just how terrible this regime is, and how. Uh, I mean, they poison people. They throw people out of windows. They, they murder people in the street. I, I mean, this is, and then they say they didn't do it. And they say that never happened. They they lie, and that's just a matter of public record. So when they say he died of natural causes, of course, the, the other day they said he died of sudden death syndrome. That's right. saying that's sort of like saying he died because he died. We we have we can't give up um, trying to find out the answer as to how he died. But the causes that he died of were was and as natural as the causes that Raoul Wallenberg died of when he died in in in, in Stalinist custody in the early 1950s, uh, and it took the, the Russians years to even recognize that he was there. So, so I mean, I, I I put zero faith in anything that any Russian official would say uh, about whether the sun was shining. Frankly, and I think we should all feel the same way because that's the kind of regime that it is. I don't think Putin is his has can be said. I don't think it can be said that he's 
he's able to get away with this with impunity. I, I don't think that's true. I, I think I think the Russian economy and the Russian people have taken a huge hit. I think they've managed to keep going uh, because of the revenues that they continue to get from the sale of natural gas. Many, many countries uh, in Europe became much too dependent on Russian gas, uh, but the Russians have also been able to sell elsewhere to the Indian government, to, to the Chinese government, to a lot of other governments that have been able to hold their noses or maybe they don't even bother uh, and, and, keep, uh, and keep Putin afloat. Uh, the ruble has lost a ton of value. Masses of people, again, this depopulation issue, which uh, Russia has suffered a huge loss of population on, upon the war. They've done everything they can to stop people from moving. Their army, they have a terrible problem recruiting people to get into the army. Uh, they've taken tremendous losses uh, in this war, far greater than the Ukrainian losses, uh, just in terms of loss of life and the numbers of people injured. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a cost to this thing that's much greater than the Russians are, are, will ever let on uh, that we need to understand is, is, is really happening. Um, and he's still much more than he would like. Uh, a pariah. Uh, he's still a, uh, uh, under an arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court. I think the charges against him, I think the, the isolation that he's, uh, that he's been facing, I don't think that's going to get much better for him. I think he's paying a very high price for this, not as high as he should. He should be in jail for the rest of his life. But he likes to think that he can strut around uh, inside the Kremlin and strut around on state-controlled television and is accepted in some countries, but not by no means all. And so he lives the life that he lives. He's massively wealthy. He's stolen billions of dollars from his own country, from his own people. Uh, but uh, I don't think you can say he's, he's getting away with it. I don't, I don't think he is getting away with it. Looking at the at the diplomacy and the politics of this of late, I think even back then there were predictions that if this were to continue, the politicization of this would eventually become an issue that, as as ironic as it sounds, that people who aren't fighting a war would develop war fatigue as opposed to those who are actually in the front lines. But when you look at what's happening in the U.S. and Congress, what's happening with NATO, what's happening in Canada, I've heard you say that you think we should be, and with the Navalny death, uh, a reminder that, that Putin is not someone that you sit down and negotiate with or appease for that matter. Oh, I mean, I, that's absolutely my position. And I, I believe that uh, he, he has broken every agreement he's made with anybody ever. Uh, he hasn't lived up to any international commitments that he's made ever. And I don't know why people would think that he's suddenly going to turn around and accept it. And there really are parallels between the period we're living and the, and the, the years of the 1930s when Hitler and Mussolini got away with it and kept on pushing. And, and there were people who said, well, maybe if we give them another inch of this country or let's cut out a little, let's carve out a little bit out of Czechoslovakia and throw them that and see if that makes them happy for a while longer. And it never worked then and it will not work now. This government and this leader will take whatever he can get and whatever you give him in a negotiated settlement, he will then take the next chunk when you're not looking. So why would you do business with this guy why would you think that you can have peace with Russia, peace with Russia under Putin? As long as Putin is there, peace with Russia is impossible. And the other night on that ridiculous uh, interview with Tucker Carlson, he made it very clear that, oh, well, he thinks Poland is part of his too, by the way, and the Baltic countries. 
And anybody thinks he's going to be satisfied with taking large chunks out of Ukraine and then say, I'm, I'm, I'm full now, it's fine. You know, he, he's just coming back for another meal. That's what peace means for him. So I, I, I don't think that I don't think people should fall asleep on on our watch. I really do believe we have to uh, we have to gear up for a long, tough battle with Mr. Putin. Some of it military, but much of it uh, economic and cyber and everything else. It's not easy living with a uh, a monster in the bedroom. It's it's not easy sharing a planet with this person. And he'll never make it easy for us. And we need to understand that that's, that's what his people have allowed him to do. That's what he's done to them. And that's what he'd like to do to the rest of the world. Bob Ray, as always, thank you. Thank you. Good to talk to you. 